The subject of the kingdom of God at the return of Jesus Christ is a critical part of the gospel message and it's been taught by Almighty God, by the Lord Jesus Christ, by the prophets and the apostles and in other words, it's the key subject of the Bible, the Holy Bible. If we look at non-biblical authorities for their comments on the gospel, they say things like this from Wikipedia. The gospel originally meant the Christian message. But in the second century, it came to be used also for the books in which the message was set out. In this sense, a gospel can, can be defined as a loose-knit, episodic narrative of the words and deeds of Jesus of Nazareth, culminating in his trial and death and concluding with various reports of his post-resurrectional appearances. And the Encyclopedia Britannica says similar things and amongst that it's, it makes this statement. It says the word gospel is derived, derived from the Anglo-Saxon term Godspell, meaning good story, a rendering of the Latin evangelium and the Greek meaning good news and good telling. And that's a reasonable explanation of the gospels as they're recorded, the four gospels. But in the Bible, the first use of the gospel, that phrase, is in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 23. And that states, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And so that's our key. That is why we have introduced the gospel to this subject of the kingdom of God upon earth at the return of Jesus Christ because it's a key to it. It's part of the gospel. But Jesus Christ also went about healing all manner of sicknesses and all manner of disease among the people. So he was doing two things. He was preaching the kingdom of God to the people. He was teaching them about the kingdom to be established upon this earth. But he was also setting before them an example by his healing of all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. He was showing people what sort of a man he was and what his plan and his purpose came out of in the things that he did. Now the Greek for gospel there in that, in that verse, and it's translated gospel 46 times, gospel of Christ 11, gospel of God seven times, gospel of the kingdom three times and then a further 10 times in a miscellaneous sense. And so this is really the Bible definition, isn't it, of the gospel. And when we look at what the gospel means, as far as Strong's concordance is concerned, now Strong was a scholar of the Greek and the Hebrew, but in this case the Greek, and understood the use of the words 
and has written these things down so that we might understand what these words really mean. And he says that the word gospel means the glad tidings. See, there's a good news aspect coming in that we saw before from Wikipedia. The glad tidings or the good news of the kingdom of God. And note what they say. The most telling words here, soon to be set up. Now here's a Greek scholar of the Bible telling us what the word gospel means. And he says it's the glad tidings of the kingdom of God soon to be set up. That's precisely what our title is. And subsequently also of Jesus the Messiah, the founder of that kingdom, and it goes on to explain that after the death of Christ, the term comprises also the preaching of or concerning Jesus Christ as having suffered death on the cross. Why? To procure eternal salvation for the men in the kingdom of God that is not yet set up, that he will set up at his return, but as restored to life and exalted to the right hand of God in heaven, thence to return in majesty, to consummate the kingdom of God on earth via a resurrection also of those who are his followers. Strong's also goes on and said it means the glad tidings of salvation through Christ. So there's another aspect, isn't it? The proclamation of the grace of God revealed and pledged in Christ. As the messianic rank of Jesus was proved by his words, his deeds, his death, the narrative of the sayings, deeds and death of Jesus Christ came to be called the gospel or glad tidings. And so note the consistent theme. The kingdom of God but also those things which concern Jesus Christ and the relevance that has to the kingdom of God and those that may gain that kingdom in the age to come. Well, this, therefore, is the gospel message that Christ will return to establish God's kingdom. It is gospel. It is good news, isn't it? And so as we've seen, when we open the Bible, this gospel is defined as the gospel, the gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of Christ, the gospel of the kingdom that he preached. Now, if we look at the gospel of Jesus, it only occurs once. Mark chapter 1 and verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so it tells us something about Jesus Christ. He was the Son of God. And he was the Son of God and the Son of Mary, of course, but the Son of God to give him the power, the moral fortitude to be able to overcome the difficulties which we have through sin, disease and death and establish a kingdom in righteousness and in truth. Now, the Gospel of Christ of course, is not used by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That's what he taught anyway. But it's used by the Apostle Paul ten times. 
And most of them fall into the category of these couple of verses here. Where in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to save people for that kingdom. For to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or people like us, the Gentiles. And in Romans chapter 15 and verse 19, there are similar words. He says that through mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that Jerusalem and roundabout unto Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. So wherever Paul went, he was preaching the gospel of Christ. And so the subject of the kingdom of God, which is what Christ preached, is therefore inseparable from the way of salvation that is in Christ. So what about the gospel of the kingdom? Now that occurs quite a few times. But this is what Jesus Christ preached. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 23, we read there, and Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. So you can see again, you have this twofold aspect. You have the gospel that he preached, the gospel of the kingdom. But you also have the fact that he was healing all manner of sickness, all manner of disease among the people. So there were certain things he was doing while he preached the gospel of the kingdom. And in chapter 9 and verse 35, we read that Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. And Mark chapter 1 and verse 14, we read that now after John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So it's consistent. He preached the gospel of the kingdom. And so there's a very important connection here, isn't it, that's coming out of these words as we consider them. That Christ demonstrated the power to curtail the curses of sin, disease and death. That's what he was doing. He was healing people of those things. And so he is setting forth the things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ while he was preaching to them the, king, the gospel of the kingdom. So we have this dual aspect. The gospel of God is exactly the same gospel. We read of, in, uh, we read of that a number of times in the writings of Paul, but in these four here, in Romans chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul says here, I am a servant of Jesus Christ. Now as a servant of Jesus Christ, he's going to do the work of Jesus Christ. Called to be an apostle, one sent to teach others those things, that gospel of Christ. But separated unto the gospel of God. So is there a difference between being a servant of Christ 
and preaching the gospel of God? The Lord Jesus Christ was the only begotten Son of God. He was absolutely at one with the Father. And so these things are one and the same thing. In chapter 15 of Romans and verse 16, we read that, that I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, to us, ministering the gospel of God. In 2 Corinthians, he says, that I preach to you the gospel of God freely. He didn't hold back on it. He made sure people understood it. And the similar thing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9. And so there's no difference between the gospel of God and that preached by Christ or by Paul. But more than just the kingdom, the gospel also contained that key aspect of the way of salvation in Christ. And if you turn to Acts chapter 8 and verse 12, we'll see this explained by Philip. And when they believed Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised. Now if we go back to verse 5 there, we find that Philip went down into the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them, the gospel concerning Christ or the gospel of Christ. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised, both men and women. Now the things concerning the kingdom aren't really the things which are going to show you why you need to be baptised. And that is why he preached to them the things concerning the name of Jesus Christ, the things concerning the way of salvation in their Messiah and King. Then they were baptised. So we note the detail that Philip preached to them the things concerning Christ. They believed. The kingdom of God was part of that subject and the name of Jesus Christ. And with that, they were baptised, both men and women. Now, the Apostle Paul knew there was only one gospel. And I think surely if you consider those verses that we've looked at already, you would see that there is a consistency about it. There's not Almighty God saying to us, don't listen to Jesus Christ, that's another gospel. They are all the same gospel. Paul is not saying Christ got it wrong and I've got it right. He's saying God got it right, so did the Lord Jesus Christ. If you listen to these things, they are right. But in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 7 we read, there be some that trouble you, that trouble those who believe these things and would pervert the gospel of Christ. So they would preach another gospel. They would doubt the things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Philippians 1 and verse 27, a similar situation, he tells the, the disciples, only let your conversation in this situation where this is in the background, where opposition is in the background, let your conversation, your way of life, 
be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. So there's no doubt there will be opposition to the gospel of Christ, to the gospel of Almighty God, to the gospel that Paul teaches, to the gospel that's in the Bible, the gospel of the kingdom. But Paul knew there is no other gospel, that gospel promoted by Jesus Christ and his Father Almighty God is the one and the same gospel message. And we need to understand it. He said there is no other gospel, that, but though we were an angel in Galatians 1 and verse 8 and 9, though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached, let him be accursed. And in verse 9, as we said before, so so now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that which you have received, let him be accursed. Clearly then the teaching of the Bible concerning the kingdom of God is good news that we need to heed. But what about today? Clearly the apostle encountered those trying to preach another gospel. But we see the same today. Other religions use the word gospel. Go on the internet and type in the word gospel and you'll get a myriad of things and a myriad of groups of people that are proclaiming their version of the gospel. So which one do we gather? Do, do, do we hold to? Which one do we seek out and take hold of? Clearly, we've already been shown that. You see, some countries... And cultures ban the Bible. You're not allowed to read it. You're not allowed to have it. There are even Western countries that have people that are seeking to ban it. They want to ban the gospel, the good news concerning the kingdom of God and the way of salvation in Jesus Christ because it does not fit their national and religious ideals, their philo philosophical ideas. For us, note that they want us to believe another gospel. In some situations, we would be sent for compulsory re-education on nationalistic lines. And perhaps with a little red book or perhaps some tract out of some philosopher or whatever that we might understand their version of the gospel. But it is not the gospel. There is only one gospel. So ultimately, we are blessed to be able to leave such matters in the hands of the one true and living God and walk by faith, directed by knowledge of the Bible message. Now, while this message concerning the gospel seems to be concentrated in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul actually tells us that this was preached before to Abraham. Now Abraham's back in chapter 11 and 12 of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Now in Galatians chapter 3, the apostle Paul tells us that the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen, the nations, the Gentiles, such as us, through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, in thee, Abraham, shall all nations be blessed. Now, where does that come from? 
Well, it comes from Genesis chapter 12. Turn, up, turn back there to Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house into a land that I will show thee. He was in Ur of the Chaldees. He went to the Euphrates River. He crossed up Haran. He paused there for a while. Some members of his family deceased at that point. He then, with his nephew Lot, passed over the river Euphrates and came down into the land of what we call Israel today. And when he was in Ur of the Chaldees, Almighty God appeared to him and he said in verse 2, I will make of thee a great nation and I will bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing and I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee and in thee shall all nations be blessed. And that is what Paul says was preached before to Abraham and is the gospel that was preached concerning the hope that people today have. In thee, Abraham, shall all families of the earth be blessed. This promise, if you turn the page, was elaborated in chapter 13 and verses 14 to 17. And the Lord said unto Abram, after that Lot was separated from him, lift up now thine eyes and look from the place where thou art, northward, southward, eastward and westward. Now note that. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. Now these are important principles. He's been told to look through the land, not look up there. Not, he wasn't told to look up to the moon or the stars or the heavens or the clouds. Right, as the many of the churches believe, we're going to end up up there with the clouds. Won't be over Australia very often because there's not many clouds here. So he didn't say look up there. He said look northward, southward, eastward, and westward. He's approximately in the middle of the land. And he said, now tread through the land, walk through this land, go have a good look at it. And he said, look, this land, I'm going to give it to you. Go and have a good walk through it, look at all of it, get familiar with it because it's going to be yours. And to thy seed after thee forever. Now Abraham's dead and buried. How's that going to happen? Obviously, there's more to come. Now this promise was reiterated to the son of Abraham, Isaac, or one of them. In Genesis chapter 26 and verses 2 to 5, where we read that, that the Lord appeared unto him, unto uh, Isaac, and said, Go not down into Egypt, dwell in the land that I will tell thee of. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with thee and will bless thee. For unto thee and to thy seed, so now it's not just the seed of Abraham, it's also the seed of Isaac, his son, which of course is going to be all the same. And unto thy seed I will give all these countries and I will perform the oath that I swear unto Abraham thy father. And Almighty God can't break an oath. 
He has to uphold it. And I will make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven, and I will give unto thy seed all these countries, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So it's a reiteration of that promise made to Abraham. Now to Isaac. Because that Abraham obeyed my voice. He was a man of faith. But also to his grandson, Jacob, in Genesis 28. And God Almighty bless thee. This is the blessing upon Jacob from Isaac. And give thee the blessing of Abraham that it might be shed upon you also. See, Isaac knew. Here, Jacob is the seed of Isaac. He's the seed of Abraham. That's the seed. That's where that promise is going to come through, that lineage of that seed. And to thy seed with thee. So not just to Jacob, but to his seed also. The 12 sons of Jacob became the 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. But it goes further. That thou mayest inherit the land wherein thou art a stranger, which God gave unto Abraham. Abraham only ever had enough of that land to be buried in. And Genesis 28 and verse 13 to 14, And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham thy father and the God of Isaac, the land wherein thou liest, to thee will I give it and to thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth. And thou shalt spread abroad, where? Not up there. To west, east, north, south. And in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Exactly the words spoken by Almighty God to Abraham. Now there's yet another connected promise that was made to King David in 2 Samuel in chapter 7 and in verse 12 we'll pick it in verse 12 David the King David is told and when thy days be fulfilled in other words David when you die so we already got Abraham did Isaac did Jacob did now David's going to die and when he dies something's going to happen again and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers in this same hope. I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. Now that's interesting because now there's the idea of a kingdom. Abram was promised the land. Now David is promised a kingdom to rule over that land. And he shall build a house for my name. See, David long to build a, a temple for the living God. And now he's being told that his seed, which is to come, will build a house for my name, for Almighty God, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now that just simply in those words there rules out anything that lineage from David that ruled over Israel and eventually over Judah. Because forever has not happened because it's not there now, is it? What's there today is not the kingdom of God that was established and was there before. Um, Almighty God says, I will be his father and he shall be my son. 
So the, the terms of this become more unique. Here's something miraculous. Almighty God is going to be the son of the, the father of this seed and he is going to be the son of God. And he goes on and says, if you commit iniquity, I will chasten him. And that's considering the fact that he would overcome the way, the problems that we have in our life. And we saw that being manifested by the Lord Jesus Christ as he preached the kingdom in the words we looked at earlier. And going on to verse 16, and he says, And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Now that becomes interesting also, because how on earth can David be dead and buried, and yet thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee, or in thy presence, David. Thy throne shall be established forever. The throne of David that he ruled over is going to be re-established and forever. And according to these words and according to this vision did Nathan speak unto David. Now in turn, this promise was reiterated to none other than Mary, the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because not only was he the son of God, he was also the son of Mary. And in Luke chapter 1 and verse 26, the angel Gabriel was sent unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth. So Gabriel is sent by Almighty God to Nazareth because there's a certain woman there. She's espoused to a man called Joseph of the house of David. And she's a virgin. Her name was Mary. And in verse 28, the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou art highly favoured. The Lord is with thee. What incredible words to have spoken to you by an angel. She must have been absolutely flabbergasted by these words. And yet she was a woman of faith. And she listened. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favour with God. And in verse 31, Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. And he shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. Now we've read those words before. They were said to David. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of, Dave, of Jacob, the house of Israel, natural Israel, forever. And his kingdom, of his kingdom, there shall be no end. This is going to be a kingdom which is going to encompass all kingdoms of this earth. It'll encompass all peoples of the earth. And it's going to remain forever. And Mary said unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Spirit shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Now that's what the Lord Jesus Christ had, that he might be able to overcome the problems we have in our nature. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. 
You see, the kingdom of God was not a new thing. Israel were constituted the kingdom of God when they were at Mount Sinai after their exodus from Egypt. And we read of that in Exodus in the third month when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the Lord called unto him or unto Moses and said, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bear you on eagle wings and brought you unto myself. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people for all the earth is mine. And he goes on and says, You shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And Moses laid before the faces of the Israelites all these words which the Lord commanded him. And the people answered together and said, All that the Lord hath spoken we will do. Now in turn, the nation was constituted a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It was constituted the kingdom of God. In First Chronicles 28 and verse 5, And of all my sons, for the Lord hath given me many sons, he hath chosen Solomon to sit upon the throne of the kingdom of the Lord. And what did Solomon rule over? The kingdom that David had ruled over, that Saul had ruled had been constituted the kingdom of the Lord when Israel came to to Mount Sinai. Okay, so the coming of Messiah is to establish the kingdom of God on earth. And that is that becomes, because of these promises that were made, it becomes a key and consistent theme of the prophets. We go to Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44 and 45 we read, in the days of these kings. Now, this is a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, and there's the image that he saw. And that image Daniel showed represented all the nations, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, thou art that head of gold. And so the empire of Babylon, then the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, the two legs of iron, the eastern Roman empire, then the feet part of iron and part of clay. In the days of these kings, and that's where we are today, down in those feet, and it's concerning these feet, part of iron and part of clay, that the prophet said, in the days of these kings that exist then, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. And that's that little stone that you can see down there that's going to smite the image on its feet and grind it all to pieces, and it's going to blow away. That's the, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar saw. Uh, Daniel says, In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom and it shall never be destroyed, exactly as promised to Mary and to David. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever, exactly as we've heard time and time again through those promises. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, the Lord Jesus Christ was moulded by Almighty God, not by men. And then it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, the gold, and the great God that hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain, 
and the interpretation thereof sure. These things are certain. They're going to happen. Now in Daniel chapter 11, we're actually told when this is going to come to pass because in verse 40, in the first phrase in verse 40, we're told that at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him. And so we're told that at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him. In 1892, Britain entered into Egypt and took control of the Suez Canal and was down there as the king of the south. The Ottomans were in power in Palestine, through Mesopotamia, through Anatolia, through Turkey as it is today. The king of the south was to push at him and push him out of Palestine. And this was fulfilled in the First World War. And so that defines to us the time of the end. Because Britain and her Commonwealth allies pushed at the Ottoman power in Palestine and pushed them from the Sinai, removed the Turks from Palestine and made way for the establishment of the nation of Israel. You see, Gallipoli had to fail. Trying to bite the head off Turkey was not within the principle that the king of the south should push at him. And the Turks attacked the Suez Canal twice to divert attention from Gallipoli. They didn't know that Britain was going to pull out of there. And Britain was forced and fulfil the terms that are laid out here. Now there's a map that shows you the attacks that the Turks made on the Suez Canal that failed. They very nearly succeeded. But what's interesting is that there's three, uh, three main roads that come out of there. The one down the bottom of the map here comes through to Arabia it was of no significance to these things because Lawrence of Arabia came down into this area of Arabia and he dried up that area from down there. But what happened is after the Turks attacked the Suez Canal, the British and the Australian Light Horse, the New Zealand Riflemen, the Indian Bikineer Camel Brigade and troops from Hong Kong and Singapore, uh, there was even a Jewish brigade there, and the Lancashire Regiment, the Yeomanry, they all then started to push the Turk out and dry him up. Because see all these spots along the road, they are wells. And what they had to do was dry up those wells so the Turks couldn't continue to attack. Coming across the Sinai, they're, a horse, they're, a, they're as far apart as a horse can go in one day without water. And so that middle one is where they began the attack. And the Australian light horse came out, and that's where they were proven in the desert there. They came out under the British control and they dried up those, a number of those wells there and prevented the Turks coming down through the Sinai. Then the warfare went up to the coastal route and they fought their way along there, drying up the Turks, making them go further and further north all the time uh, so that they were dried up and they were pushed. What do we read? That at the time of the end, the king of the south shall push at him. Now concurrent with that, Revelation chapter 16 and verse 12 was happening. The sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates. That's symbolic of the Ottoman Turk. 
and the waters thereof were dried up that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And that was Lawrence of Arabia with Chevelle, Allenby, Grant and so forth in control of those troops that we've talked about. Now Britain's resources were thin and that's why Lawrence of Arabia was able to go out there into Arabia and use the Arabs who were already fighting against the Turks, wanting to get rid of them, they, and used them. And, and he met up with Allenby in Jerusalem uh, when they took Jerusalem. And you have the Balfour Declaration taking place, the Battle of Beersheba, all these things in the middle of it, of this push to dry up the Euphratian River power in Palestine, they came right back to Anatolia and that's where they got four days before armistice so that the nation of Israel could be established. But when you consider Euphratian power is to be dried up, today, if you look on a map and you've got the border of Anatolia there, you've got all these, these fingers that come down like this to form the Euphrates River. Now, all that that goes through Mesopotamia, they no longer own. That's been dried up. But you've got these fingers, the roots of it, are still there. Because in the rest of verse 40 we read, this is yet to happen. And it requires different powers. The king of the north, here's another power. We believe it's Russia, confederate with those from Europe and others. Shall come against him, Constantinople, the Turk that's left there, and let's face it, Erdogan and Putin are not getting on that well, with chariots and horsemen and many ships and shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. But this has got a future sequel and that's what we're, what we're trying to come to. We can see that the time of the end has been marked out by those things that happened. The cleansing of the land from the Turk so that the state of Israel might be established as it was in 1948 and as it is today in the land of Israel. Because in verse 41 we read that the king of the north, he shall enter into the glorious land and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom, Moab and the chief of the children of Ammon. Now they're the Arab countries that ironically are very friendly these days to Israel and pro-Western. But he shall stretch forth his hand also upon the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He's going to come right down into Egypt. So he's going to come into Turkey and right down into Egypt. And in verse 44, but tidings out of the east and the north shall trouble him. And what he's going to do, he's going to go up and he's going to plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him. So this is what's going to happen. This power that's going to come from the north and we believe is what's being built up in the north today. We haven't talked in Zechariah chapter 14. Behold, the day of the Lord comes and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee for I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And note this, his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. It's very particular about where this is going to happen. 
And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and the west, and there shall be a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north and half of it towards the south. I've stood on the Mount of Olives. And a guide told us when we quoted that, that's very interesting. This hotel behind us, they, the Israeli authorities bent the rules to allow two stories. They wanted multi-stories. They allowed two stories because of the massive fault line that's underneath here and is unstable. They know it. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day there shall be one Lord and his name one. Now isn't that precisely what we have seen? You see, this is the moment when the world will be confronted with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is going to return to the Mount of Olives and he is going to become king over the whole world as Daniel chapter 2 showed, as was promised to Mary. The angel promised that when he ascended to the right hand of the Father in Acts chapter 1. It records a query directed to the resurrected Messiah concerning the kingdom that he had spoken about so much. In verse 6, they asked of him saying, Wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? The kingdom of God. Are you going to restore it again? The Romans were ruling over it. And he said unto them, it is not for you to know the times and the seasons. Now, times and seasons are pretty big, can be pretty big times. And we can be thankful about that because it's come down to the point where we are part of those times and seasons that have got to take place before Christ is going to return. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And we can be thankful that this message of the gospel concerning the name of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God has had to be first preached to the uttermost parts of the earth before that kingdom is established because it's brought it down to us. But then he goes on in verse 9. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly, behold, two men, the angels, stood by them in white apparel and said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Then uh, they were on Olivet, part of the Mount of Olives. And so the Lord, the Messiah, the King, will be revealed to our world. Because in Zechariah 14, what did we read? Behold, the day of the Lord cometh. His feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And in verse 9, the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day there shall be one Lord and his name one. Thank you.